You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we're glad to be back. We're uh, still in Second Samuel. Second Samuel. So yeah, we're we're up to the third whole chapter of the book. So it's taken us a little bit to get here. Yeah, it's yeah. going a little much slower, I think, than what you expected, huh? It is, and the deeper I get into Samuel, even slower <laughs> than I expected it goes. I'm up to. As far as note writing, I'm, I'm like up into chapter eight, and I've got like hundreds of pages of notes literally on those chapters. So we're going to chase some rabbit trails and stuff, and plus we're working some psalms in. And Yeah. You know. No, I, I'm excited, especially to see where we get with the psalms, because there's, there's always way more in the psalms than you expect. There really is. I and mean, it's, it's like, you know, listening to good songs. There's always more in there than what you think, especially if you get to actually... I wish we could actually talk to David, but you know, you get to talk to the artist who put stuff together. Explain to me your motivation for creating this specific piece. Yeah, which which I <laughs> do think is great that because we do have the opportunity to go through it at the same time as we're going through Samuel, that we will get to overlap some of that so we can see some of the circumstances. Right. We might not get to actually talk to David, but we'll get to see some of the circumstances surrounding it. So, well, but yeah, we'll get it together. So, the weird face was. A sneeze. Yeah, I can tell you. That's, to... your, that's your like trying not to sneeze face. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to blow out your eardrums on this. I know you could edit it out for the listeners, but <laughs> yeah, it's all good. So I don't have my headphones up that loud. I, those days are over. So. Yeah. But anyway, old... so we're chapter three, right? We're in Is chapter that where we three. Are? Yeah, we're actually picking up in uh, verse twelve. Yeah, and first part of chapter three for those who may not remember. Uh, yeah, Saul's son accused Abner of sleeping with Saul's concubine, which actually I should make a note of that. I mentioned a previous episode, you mentioned that there wasn't much, hardly any mention of Saul's wives and concubines. Guess we forgot about this because yeah. there was a concubine mentioned, but we do have a name for at least one. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, was she named? I, yes, I believe she was. Oh my goodness. You know what? I have like slept since It's then. been a little while. Yeah. And so... Yeah. Whose name was Rizpah. Yeah. yeah. She was named. She was named. So Good yeah. Good memory. Well, but you know, it also does show that even though I said that they weren't named, the, the women in Saul's life really aren't, they, they just don't get a lot of attention. Right. So even when you have a name, I mean, how many of us would win that Bible trivia round? Who is, what was the name of Saul's wife? Uh, I could give you three or four wives of David are at the top of my head, even before we started this, but not Saul's. Right. So uh, it, the fact that they're kind of even further, um, it kind of illustrates the point, I think, sure. is the words I'm looking for. So yeah, so Abner had taken this, this concubine. Uh, Ishbosheth was not happy about it. And Presumably taken the concubine. It doesn't say definitely either way. It doesn't say definitely, but at the same time, Abner never denies the charge. And so the fact that he doesn't deny it kind of is a little bit telling. And uh, I've been watching a lot of how to tell when people are lying videos. And evidently, if you don't directly deny the charge or you deny it too vehemently, uh, those are both tip-offs that you 
are not telling the truth. Okay. So, uh, but the fact that he doesn't uh, kind of gives us a little insight that it might have happened. And we talked about the significance of that. But Abner is just completely upset that uh, Ishbosheth would even make such an accusation or deny him this woman. Either way, he decides that he's had enough of Ishbosheth and he goes to David. And so in verse 12, it says, And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does this land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you and bring over all of Israel to you. And so in verse 13, we have, And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. This is David talking. But one thing I require of you is that you shall not see my face unless you first bring me Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So... Yeah, David sees an opening and he takes it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is David. He He's always aware of every opportunity and potential opportunity within any given situation. And he, he's always weighing all the, um, all the options. But it's really interesting because if Abner can't have Saul's concubine, then why should anybody be allowed to have David's wife? So there's this little parallel going on within the scenario that's ah. involving women. And the fact that another man has David's wife, as we talked about the implications of what it meant for Abner to have Saul's concubine, the same holds true, even more so, because this isn't a concubine. This is Saul's daughter. This is David's wife, and right. one that he went to great lengths to achieve. And so... Yeah. He retrieved a whole bunch of foreskins for it. Yeah, 200, wasn't it? For her. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say it. Yeah, no, not it. Yeah, no. sorry. It and reference to the marriage, not her. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to make sure I'm clear on that. Yeah. She's not in it. Well, and the thing is, the, in the story, she's very much treated like that. And I'm not going to talk much about her uh, within this story because we really don't we don't have anything from her. But when we move forward, we're going to talk about when David brings back the the ark to Jerusalem, and she is a central player there. And I think we really have to take into account her situation and what she was going through when we look at that story in particular. But anyway, Ishbosheth is afraid of Abner. We were told that in a previous verse that the king of Israel is scared of his own general. And so I believe David is seeing, hey, if Ishbosheth has a problem with Abner and is willing to obey Abner, then why not take this opportunity to get Abner to act and bring me back my wife? Mm-hmm. And so he, he's making good use of the leverage he has here. So in verse 14, then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, for whom I have paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. So David sends this word back to Abner, and he says, you know, not Abner, sorry, but Ishbosheth, Ishbosheth to let, uh, let him know he's not dealing with just Abner. Mm-hmm. Ishbosheth is going to have to deal with David on this. Right. And David also includes that 100 foreskins. Now, just a minute ago, I said 200. Remember, Saul set 100 right. as the price. And then David, David got doubled two. it. Yeah. yeah. So David's not even mentioning how far above and beyond he went to get her. He's just sticking with, this is the agreement your father and I made, and you need to honor it. And getting, um, getting her back, getting Macal back, proves that he is worthy of a king because he's reclaiming what belongs to him. He's putting his own house back in order. And by putting his own house back in order, he's kind of demonstrating, I can do this for the rest of the kingdom. It also has the added benefit of uniting David's house 
with Saul's house. And there's some major political implications because the the kingdom's already divided. Mm-hmm. Which king do they follow? Saul was anointed by God. David was anointed by God. Which one do they choose? Because obviously you can't have Saul's house and David's house. You need one or the other if the kingdom's going to be united. And so if he can bring some of Saul's house into his own house, now he's saying, you've got no reason to choose. Right. They're both right here. And so um, that really demonstrates David's power in the situation, but it also demonstrates his power over Ishbosheth. Because if Ishbosheth is going to bow to David's dictates and David's commands, instead of following the, the deal that his father, that Saul had made with Michal after David had left, now Ishbosheth is basically acknowledging that David is the greater king. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so this is really humiliating for Ishbosheth to allow David to force him into a place where he has to return Michal. And what's really kind of almost ironic about all this is what Ishbosheth was incapable of doing for himself in keeping the concubine of his father away from his father's general, he's now being forced to do for David. Right. And so there's a little reversal there that's kind of almost, you know, a little knife in the side and a little twist given to it. And it's really not about Macau. This is why we don't hear her voice at this point. It is about the politics. Sure. Sure. Yeah. She, she has no voice. She never speaks once in this entire chapter and there's no words from her, but here's the problem. Bringing her back has major theological implications, not just political ones. Because with David, there's never just a political, you know, consequence or, you know, it's always got that spiritual and theological side. A divorced woman could not be remarried by a husband she had divorced if she had married someone else between the divorce and the second marriage. Right. Now, this was a form of protection because there is this uh, kind of idea in some cultures that you can do a temporary divorce, that a man can divorce his wife for a day or two, loan her out to his friends, and then he can remarry her. And so the marriage is uh, the way in which he's allowed to pimp her out and still be proper about it. It just seems so weird. Well, it's weird and it's wrong, and it's another way of treating women like cattle and just accessories to life instead of a covenant partner. And God said, this isn't going to happen in my community. Mm -hmm. And so this isn't trying to um, be mean to women and not allowing women to have husbands or, you know, the reconciliation. This is really about protecting women from the abuses of men who like to find, or humanity, not just men, who like to find loopholes. Uh, mm-hmm. I've I've always said if you give people rules, you're really just handling handing them loopholes, right. and especially anybody who's had teenagers knows how true that is. So, <laughs> excuse me, just choke myself up. But <laughs> oh my gosh, you really think you're funny, <laughs> don't you? <laughs> so yeah, no, I'm not that amusing. I, I promise. Um, But the question of this whole scenario is, did David ever divorce Macau? Well, I don't see it in the record, not in the written record. And so, I mean, you can always make a case for abandonment, but Mm -hmm. is that 
is that a legal statute in Jewish law at the time? Because are we just reading 20th century things onto it where you can legally divorce someone for abandonment? So I don't know if that exists in the law at the time, whether case law or Torah. There, there's actually some some very old records that we were able to draw from um, that if a man goes off to war and is presumed dead and his wife remarries, he can reclaim that wife okay. because it's a matter of, you know, is he dead? And at that point in time, someone could die on a battlefield and nobody would ever know. Mm-hmm. You, I mean, mm-hmm. you could die walking down the side of a, you know, a mountain cliff or whatever, which David definitely was in those kind of places, you know, fall off a trail, nobody would ever know. But he was never presumed dead as far as we know. As and also, far as we know. And it's also, he didn't just, I mean, he did leave, but mm-hmm. she, he was, she was also taken from him. Right. I mean, that was, that was a legal arrangement made by Saul. Yeah, and that's the thing. He left her. He never made any attempts to reclaim her during the entire time that he was on the run from Saul. That's never explained. I always found that to be very interesting because why didn't he try to to do something knowing how volatile and abusive Saul was? And, you know, she even made the claim that David tried to kill her to keep Saul from being mad at her. And we don't know if, you know, she was telling the truth, if David uh, actually tried to kill her or threatened to kill her. And Well, it may just be they were both just kind of politically savvy and willing to play the long game. You know, and I think Macau was. I mean, that that's one of the things you see about her. She has a very set idea of what the, the monarchy should look like and what should be expected from kings and what should happen within the household of a king. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely going to see that later. But she very well could have been, like you said, politically savvy and, and making these decisions on the, on the long game versus trying to just do what's right. Mm -hmm. And now there is uh, another problem too in here. uh, Well, another, not necessarily a problem, but one of the things that happens also is uh, in this time, men would write a provision, a provisional divorce that if they would go off on a long trip and whether it be for war or trading or business, that kind of thing, and they were not heard from and not seen within a certain number of years, then a wife could divorce them at that point. Okay. And so there, there were uh, kind of safeguards built into Jewish law uh, to take into account that, you know, sometimes if you're in business at that point in time and you needed to go to, you know, get some cedar wood where you go to Phoenicia, that could require you being gone for months and maybe even years, depending on what happened. This was not uncommon for, for married people to be separated like that. Right. And so as far as Michal and David's, their, their marital status, like you said, it's never laid out in the scripture. The, the, the uh, sages and the rabbis tried to say that there was a divorce here, but you know, even then it's a divorce under duress. So how do, well does that hold up under law? That's mm-hmm. a really good question. And um, the idea that David could reclaim her really isn't a matter of is it right or wrong at this point in time? It's what message does it send to the people? So at this point, really kind of the theology is put aside in favor of what's politically expedient. And, you know, David, we know he's not above putting aside the law and the, the, the letter of the law 
in order to do what's necessary or what he deems necessary in the moment. See, we don't have any great answers for this. And what we do find is some really interesting insights into um, Mikhail's wedding. And we're going to talk, get ready to talk about this and her new husband and why this is so problematic for the rabbis and the sages. So verses 15 and 16 and Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. So Paltiel, he's grieved at losing his wife. Hmm. And he, I mean, we're never told why, but it doesn't really seem like it's for any political kind of aspirations because he's never mentioned again. He's not viewed as uh, David's enemy. He's not taken out, uh, which you would have expected if he had posed any kind of political threat. Sure. We're not told how Mikal feels about this. And we should also remember that David's never credited with loving anyone other than Jonathan. Mm-hmm. So the idea of him loving her is almost like too far-fetched to even entertain because he never seems to really care about her. Now, the rabbis say that Paltiel and um, Mikal were never married. And they were never married because it was never consummated. However, if we just go by what's on the page, which is always a good place to start, it says he is her husband. And so the scripture does not say he's her husband almost or husband in name only. It says straight up that she and and Paltiel are married. Now, in trying to explain why they might be married in name only, they came up with some really great stories. Of course uh, they did. Yeah. And they're just fun, which is why I like to share them is, you know, just to, to look at how they, they process their scripture. And I was thinking about uh, this week, I'm going to trace, chase a little rabbit here. I was thinking about that this week, how the rabbis do come up with all these great stories about things that they don't understand or where there's gaps in the, sto- in the text and we're trying to put the pieces in place. And, you know, we kind of laugh about it, but, you know, we do the same thing. Mm. that's something we as Christians will read a phrase and it won't quite make sense. And we'll go, Oh, well this must mean this, this, and this happens when the the text never says that. And we do it just so that the Bible is more palatable to our sensibilities. Yeah. So one of the stories that the rabbi says is that God intervened. And so Paul Tiel was never able to express his desire for her. Okay. Whatever. Uh, another one is that Paltiel is, is grieved because having her in his house provided him the opportunity to daily overcome temptation and fulfill the law through his sacrifice of desire for her to God and, and, and not in giving in, and in not giving in, he was proving himself holy and righteous. <laughs> I kind of wonder what Paul would do with that. <laughs> given what he had to say about sexual temptation. <laughs> Better to marry than to burn? Uh, flee it. <laughs> flee. Well, there's that flee too. Flee se- sexual temptation. <laughs> oh, okay. that's, what, that's what Paul says. Well, I, I got stuck on the other one. But anyway, <laughs> that's why I'm married. But the, the point is that this idea that having her removed from his presence makes him a little less holy because he's not fighting temptation on a daily basis, which 
you got to love the rabbis. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that sounds about as convoluted as certain other things I've heard about the Bible. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, the, the third option is that he was an older man who was already married to several wives. Okay, plausible. That happened a lot in the Bible, or, you know, enough to not make it abnormal. And that he loved her like a daughter. And, well, if he loved her like a daughter, then we should know daughters need to go be sent off to be with their husbands. And anyway, all of this was said in order to keep David from committing a sin and to make him, David, look more righteous. And the problem is the text doesn't support any of them. So, you know, we kind of have to just go with David wanted her back because it was a smart political move. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's mm -hmm. really what it comes down to. So in verse 17, we're told that Abner, he, he goes out and he talks to the elders of Israel. And we learn at this point that they're, they've already been thinking of David as king or, or the possibility of having him as king. And he tells them that David is the one that God will use to free them from the Philistines. Now, the elders haven't played a huge role recently, but we need to remember it was the elders who called for a king. They're the ones who wanted a king, and their express purpose for wanting a king was to drive the Philistines out of their land. And we should also remember Saul never defeated the, the Philistines. And now that Saul's son is on the throne, the Philistines are still living in the cities of Israel. Mm -hmm. Yep. So they're beginning to think maybe David might be just a little bit more effective than mm -hmm. the men of Saul's house. So in verse 19, you know, Abner gets really brazen, and, and he goes to the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this is Abner's tribe, but it's also Saul's tribe. Mm -hmm. And it's Ishbosheth's tribe and family. And he says, hey, you need, to, you need to accept David as a king. And everybody in the tribe of Benjamin thinks it's a great idea. So Abner, the kingmaker, is become the king breaker for Ishbosheth, but now he's becoming the kingmaker for David. So he's kind of gone through this, this very interesting cycle of okay. in development. And I love kind of the methodology. I mean, I, I say I love it. I, I like the pattern. I like seeing how he's doing it and how it's revealed, not necessarily what he's doing, but like what's revealed and how he's doing. He is piece by piece, systematically dismantling Ishbosheth's reign. He begins by taking Saul's concubine, or at least possibly. Then he moves on to take Ishbosheth's sister, Saul's daughter, and return her back to David. Then he goes to the elders of Israel and gets their approval to make David king. And now he goes to Saul's family and his tribe, and Ish or Ishbosheth's family and tribe, one and the same. And he gets them on his side. So he, he has really just kind of crept in, you know, like water in the rock, freezing and just, just slowly dismantling everything Ishbosheth had any kind of claim to. Now, in verse 20 and 21, we're told that Abner takes 20 men to the feast with David. And remember, eating together is a sign of unity and solidarity. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon that when you make a covenant that you would share a meal. And Abner promises to deliver all of Israel to David and says that they will make a covenant, that Israel's going to make a covenant with David, and David will reign as his heart desires. And so we're told in this verse, in verse 21, Abner departs in peace. We're going to be told that three times, verse 21, verse 22, and verse 23. Okay. Now, 
is Abner saying, do it as your heart desires? Is that do what's right in your own eyes? No, it's not. I okay. actually looked it up. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping you would have at least checked. Yeah. And we really seem to have kind of abandoned uh, that phrase from judges uh, okay. so far, because we're going to encounter it a couple more times. Which here. is probably intentional when referring to David. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's not David's eyes so much that gets him in trouble as it really is his heart. Although there's one notable exception. Uh, we'll talk about that when we get there. Fair enough. But... Because we're told three times that Abner departs in peace, the writer really wants you to know David didn't do anything to Abner. Abner was safe as long as he was with David. So we find out why this is so important in verse 22. When Abner leaves, Joab and his men, they return, and they've been out raiding, and they return with much spoil. Now, this is uh, going out and raiding various towns and villages and collecting spoil was very much a part of the rule of both uh, Ishbosheth and David. Remember, they are an official kings. They haven't instituted a full reign and system and, and you know, government with all of the mechanisms to collect taxes yet. So they're having to provide for their troops any way they can. So this was kind of a necessary element of uh, Joab's job. And we're specifically told in verse 22 that Abner's no longer in Hebron. And so this move by David seems to be intentional. And many commentators believe that what David did was basically, Abner, go do your thing. Or, not Abner, Joab, go do your thing. Abner, you come over to dinner while Joab's out mm -hmm. and leave before he gets back. Yep. And so I mean, we've got to remember, it's been a few weeks since we talked about it. Abner was the one who killed Joab's brother, mm -hmm. Asahel. And so keeping them separate is just smart. And so in verse 23, Joab, he learns, and we aren't told who tells him this, but somebody tells Joab that Abner's come and gone in peace. So again, it, uh, Abner's gone in peace. Joab's furious with David. So in verse 24, Joab confronts the king and he says, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it you sent him away so that he is gone? And in verse 25, you know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know what's going on and you're coming in, and you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you were doing. So Abner is trying to give David a reason to, to suspect. I mean, sorry, Joab is trying to give David a reason to suspect Abner's motives. You know, he's not really here because he wants to make a covenant. Mm -hmm. He's he's spying, which, you know, you've got to remember Joab and Abner kind of inhabit the same roles for each of the kings. Mm -hmm. And so Joab kind of has some insight into what Abner might be willing to do. And there's a reason to think that that Joab had some understanding of Abner, and they kind of seem to have this very friendly rivalry, or at least respectful rivalry previously. And it wasn't until the death of Asahel that we see Joab really just, he turns against Abner. Now, the other part of this equation, too, is Abner's the big reason why Joab and his men had to spend so much time in Philistine uh, country, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. all of Saul's moves, everything he did to try to, to pursue David and take David and his men out, they were facilitated through Abner. He's the one that made all of these you know, chases and raids and everything possible. If Abner hadn't been uh, listening and, and loyal to, to Saul, then David and Joab and his brothers would never have experienced these horrible years that they had experienced on the run. Right. So 
from that point of view, it makes a lot of sense that Joab would have a lot of animosity towards Abner. And you also have to kind of wonder, too, if maybe there isn't a little bit of jealousy going on. Because if anybody was going to replace Joab, Abner would be the smart choice. Mm -hmm. He's the guy most qualified for for the job. And also, David and Abner probably have more shared history of any two men alive in Israel than anyone else at this point. Yep. Because Abner was a general in Saul's house while David was serving, you know, playing the lyre, playing the kinnor. Mm-hmm. When he became a general, Abner would have been probably one of the men who helped train David. And we all know that there, there's a special bond that forms when you have someone teach you something like warfare. Uh, we, we, Got so many movies out there on Netflix. Pick that are one. Basically, just about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, there's there's a lot going on here. There's a lot of personal dynamics that we don't often think about when we just read the story, particularly if we just read the story in isolation. And so Joab has every reason to feel this way. He's not being stupid, and he's not overreacting to any of this. So, verse twenty six. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent out messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah, but David did not know about it. So in verse 27, Joab, he, he pulls Abner aside. He's in the midst of the gate, as if he kind of wanted this private conversation, and, and he strikes Abner down. And specifically, he strikes him in the, the fifth rib or the fifth part. We talked about that. It's the mm-hmm. same place that Asahel was struck down. Right. So when Abner dies, we're told that it was for the blood of Asahel. Now, massive problems with this, because number one, Joab didn't challenge Abner. This was a sneak attack. This, mm-hmm. is, this is not the move of somebody who, who's acting with honor. And then we're told that Abner calls him aside when he's in the gates of the city. Well, why would he do this? Because Hebron is a city of refuge. Joab couldn't have killed Abner within the city without the possibility of facing death himself. So he's being very smart about this. Now, Joab seems to think that he is acting as a blood avenger at this point, that you know, Abner killed his brother. He has a right to, to seek revenge. And the problem is, Azahel's death was not a murder. Right. That that blood adventure role only came into play when it was a murder, right? But I mean the 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 rules for that are laid out pretty clearly, and this and it is if you do accidentally kill someone, you go to the city of refuge, so until you can be tried. Yeah. So was that had Abner been tried at this point? So well, what's there to put still, on trial? Uh, yeah, but what's there to put him on trial for? To find out if it was an accident or not. I mean, it was obviously recorded as an accident, but you still have to go through a trial at certain points with certain. But I would the assume. thing is, here's the thing: it, it was warfare. At that point, they're warring against. We're told that. Yeah, what, true. And so, it, as the as a death in a time of warfare, it's completely outside the realm of murder. Yeah. And even accidental death. And so, the fact that Joab de- does this shows that Joab has absolutely no understanding or. Or respect for the law. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, I can follow that. Yeah. And, you know, Abner, he might be a shady politician, but Joab is completely out of line at this point. Right. Now, here's the thing. 
we can't say one's better than the other, but I think we're all kind of aware that there's almost this assumption that every person who's on a crusade or, you know, trying to make major change or do something really great almost needs that one person who's going to blur the lines, who might be willing to bend the rules to get things done. Abner and Joab were those people for Mm -hmm. David and Saul, respectively. And so this is going to come into play when we see David's response to all this. So verse 28, afterward, when David heard of it, so again, we've been told David didn't know about what happened at the gates of the city in the previous verse. Now we're told afterward David hears of it. So the writer has gone out of his way to let you know David has nothing to do with this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. So David even makes a statement. I didn't do this. I didn't want it. This has nothing to do with me and my kingdom. And the writer, you know, he's made it clear. So verse 29, may it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all of his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or is leprous or holds a spindle or falls by the sword or lacks bread. So David's curse is pretty straightforward. It's fun. Uh, it's an interesting thing to pick apart. Is it, is it fun? <laughs> well, okay. I you, gotta think... watch, you, gotta, you gotta be more sparing with fun. <laughs> There's certain things that you've been saying on the podcast lately that are fun. I'm like, that's not fun. Well, I mean... It's interesting. It's interesting, yeah. Well, these are things that amuse me about the text, not so much about what actually happened. But I I find what the text reveals... some dark humor if you're into that is what you're saying. Yeah, which is really probably why I spent more time in the Old Testament is because I like dark humor, and so that's why it appeals to me. But um, so basically he, he's saying let Abner's house always have someone who's unclean, someone who's unable to participate in the life of the community. And also make sure there's always someone in his house to remind him that proud people need to remain humble. And if they don't remain humble, then there's, there is a problem. Uh, now, the, the one in here that throws most people for a, a loop is, may there be one who always holds a spindle. Uh, now, this is an interesting, not fun, notice I corrected myself. <laughs> uh, this is an interesting thing to include in a curse. Because we have some cognate overlaps, and we we kind of have some difficulties translating this. It could be uh, one who relies on sticks, like canes or crutches. So okay, someone yeah. who's lame, which makes sense. But if we just go with the Hebrew straightforward, it is spindle. And as in spinning. Like spinning wool. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you notice, David's curse is directed at the males. It's not directed at women. And so all of this is really an attack on men being warriors, men being able to participate in battle and being a part of that communal life within an army. You couldn't do any of that if you were one of these people. So the idea of the the curse isn't so much the idea of, this guy's going to spin. It's that the only way he could earn a living was to spin because he was so frail and weak that Hmm. he was forced to do a woman's job 
in order to, to maintain himself. Now, I use that term woman's job loosely because the other part we need to keep in mind is in this society, if something needed to be done, the person available did it. Right. You know, so men knew how to cook meals. They knew how to do basic sewing and you know know, that that is actually a a pet peeve of mine whenever people (laughs) want to say that cooking is a woman's job that's a that's a survival skill that's that's not a gender thing that is a human thing you need to know how to do to survive so and that's the thing i mean from the beginning of time whoever was hungry learned how to cook Mm -hmm. you know it's just that simple and uh, so the idea that... We had four kids in our family. Mom always didn't have time to stop and make a snack. I had to learn how to get in the kitchen and put food together. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the thing, and the funny thing is you actually love to cook, and I'm the one who, if I can get out of it and just be fed good food, <laughs> I'm there. So yeah, it's <laughs> talk well, a little it, role it, reversal. <laughs> it, it is a lot of fun. I enjoy it. But yeah, and, and you know, so the idea that, that men would know how to do the basic household necessities, not a big deal. The fact that women would know how to do animal husbandry and even use a sling in defense of, uh, of the flocks and different mm-hmm. things like that. This is nothing new, okay? This is, well, actually, the fact that we would divide the roles the way we do is very much, new. It's much newer, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so, but the idea isn't so much about a, a child who, or a, a male heir who would do woman's work. It's the, about a man who was weak, a man who, who couldn't do anything like, you know, farming, which required mm-hmm. moving rocks out of a field or tending flocks or being that, that macho warrior that Joab was. Right. And so we need to, to, Read it from that perspective. He's not saying it's horrible to do woman's work. He's saying it's horrible not to be able to do all the work that one would expect within the society. Sure. So, and also we should note that the reason why that's horrible is because now you're dependent on others. Mm-hmm. Because most households, things like spinning the, the year's wool, that was just done around the fireside in the evening. You didn't hire it out. So if you if you had somebody paying you to do it, it was usually an act of charity. They really didn't need you to do it. So makes sense. There's, um, yeah, and that's the thing. It's all about humiliation and being reliant on others in a society where yes, you work together, but you never wanted to be a burden to your society. You always wanted to be contributing to it. So, verse thirty. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because they put their brother to death at the Battle of Gibeon. Now, the writer includes Abishai for the first time. Uh, up to this point, we aren't told that he's part of what's going on, and suddenly he's here. But we're reminded, we're, we're reminded that Asahel was killed in battle, and that there was really no reason for the brothers to feel like they had a right to avenge his death. So, verse 31 Then David said to Joab, and all the people are with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And David followed. I can't read my own handwriting. What did David follow? I don't know. What verse are we in again? Verse 31. The buyer. David said to Joab, to all who are with him, tear your clothes, put on a sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the beer? Yeah, buyer. Yeah, the, the funeral buyer. And so, you know, unlike... Ishbosheth, who could not even 
speak back to his general Abner. David says, look, you're going to mourn over the guy you just murdered. You're going to show him all the proper and due respect, and you're going to humiliate yourself in the midst of this mourning. And David's not afraid to, to lead a man like Joab. He, he's okay with standing up and saying, you're going to do what I tell you to do because this is what's expected of my generals. Right. And, you know, he's, he knows that he can't allow his generals to question his decision. He can't allow dissension in the ranks. He has to set the standard and they have to rise to it. Ishbosheth never figured this out. Now, we, we do have this mention of sackcloth. Um, just for quick reference, nobody knows what this is. We, we all act like we know what it is. We don't. We, um, we know it was used in times of mourning. Mm-hmm. But that's about it because fabric doesn't last real well in you know, ages that pass in the desert. It, it kind right. of disintegrates rather quickly. And so some of the possibilities, it refers to the shape of the garment, that, that it was basically like a feed sack mm-hmm. that had an opening for a head. Um, some have even suggested that it's just a simple loincloth and that's all that it was. And so you put aside your finery and Mm -hmm. you just kind of basically. Yeah. That is one of the things I kind of thought there's probably got to be some kind of element of that, of, of just being, you know, uh, there's kind of this recognition in someone who's very acquainted with, with being around funerals and whatnot. Mm -hmm. There is kind of this, this moment of, Hey, you know, we're, we're all the same to, to death. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's even a famous song from Hamilton about it, you know, <laughs> death I, doesn't dif- uh, discriminate between sinners and saints, it just takes and takes and takes. Well, um, so yeah, I think there's a, yeah. Okay. I could get sidetracked on that, but we're, we, <laughs> we aren't going to do that. that. But whatever the specifics of this, this garment is, and most of, most believe it was probably kind of a roughly woven cloth, probably out of, um, goat hair. But that's as specific as any speculation can really get. Um, David is saying, you're, you're going to wear this and you're going to, to mourn for the general of our enemy, just as David had mourned over the death of Saul and Jonathan. And he leads by example because he, David's breaking all convention for a king. Uh, he shouldn't be following Abner's funeral procession. Uh, in the Talmud, it's flat out, forbidden for a king to even attend a funeral. Interesting. Yeah, because a king should never be seen as distraught. Hmm. And to be distraught or emotional, as is appropriate when one is at a funeral, would betray the king as being you know, a little too human and a little bit too um, emotionally driven, maybe. And so the king can't go. But, you know, David was never really all that worried about propriety and dignity, and we're going to see even more of that as we yeah, go forward. Yeah. But Abner is buried in Hebron, and David and the people, they, they weep at his grave. And now, verse 33, we're told that the king composes a lament for Abner. And this is the first time that David is referred to simply as the king. He, he always before he's David, king of Israel, or King David. This is the only, well, not the only, it's the first time we have simply the king mm-hmm. and not any reference to the name of David. We're going to get back to why that might be important. But he says, should Abner die as a fool dies? 
Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. And so for the, um, I already mentioned that. But um, there's this idea that in this moment of lamenting over Abner, that David's identity as king is solidified. It, mm-hmm. It's really cemented in the... Um, in the eyes of the people and his laments kind of a curious combination because it's, it's praise for Abner. You know, you, you're a great guy. You shouldn't have died this way. Right. But it's also criticism of Joab. And so David in this public lament over Abner, he, he is letting Joab kind of have it. And, um, you know, he, he's saying Abner was only killed because an evil man had tricked him. Mm-hmm. And so for David to to say this about his own general, man, I this is harsh because Joab's going to continue to be his general for a very long time. So verse 35, then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. And David swore saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste of bread or anything else until the sun goes down. So to fast at death's uh, opponent, uh, to, to fast at the death of one's opponent was completely unheard of. You, sure. You just didn't do it. And, you know, once again, David is revealing that his kingdom is not going to conform to cultural ac- expectations. Uh, he's going to do things the way he believes are right most of the time, and sometimes he's going to mess up. But his ideas of what is right and wrong don't always conform with everybody else's. And of course, this also reminds us of the end of 1 Samuel, where Saul goes and visits the witch of Endor, and he's not going to eat anything, but he's easily prevailed upon to to eat by the witch and his servants. And David refuses to submit to the will of the people, not just one or two people, not even three people, the will of all the people who are present. He, he says, I'm not going to do it, and he holds his ground. And this is another reason why David's a better king than Saul. He isn't swayed by peer pressure in the same way. So verse 36, and all the people took notice of it and it pleased them as everything the king did pleased all the people. So the people, the people are responding to this authentic show of grief, which I don't have a hard time buying as legitimate or authentic because of their shared history. Mm. You can fight with someone for years, but if you had that, that shared history that went deep enough, there's still going to be a sense of loss. Absolutely. And so the, the idea that people would be pleased that David would ex, you know, expose himself this way, and this really is very revealing, maybe even more revealing than when he dances before the ark, that he would, he would care this much. And the people, they, they do respond. Because I think one of the things we as human beings do when we see real legitimate emotion, and, and not emotion that, that's kind of, um, like I said, manufactured, it was one way, or you know, kind of just drummed up for theatrical effect. It, we we do respond to that, and whether we want to or not, and we will respond by either being drawn to it or pushed away from it. But but we have a response. But another reason that the people would be pleased during the midst of Saul's reign, which was marked with all sorts of chaos and unpredictability, mm-hmm. Abner was the guiding voice. He was the stabilizing factor in Saul's reign. Mm -hmm. He was the face of the army of Saul that everybody knew to respect and love. And then when Ishbosheth takes over, 
Abner's the real power, and everybody seems to accept that because when Abner goes to him and says, "Hey guys, Ishbosheth probably isn't the one we want. We might want to switch over to David," they all agreed. Right. And so for a man to be able, a single man to be able to go out and sway public opinion like that, and to get these people to switch loyalties, he was somebody very significant in their minds already. Right. And, you know, honestly, if you, if you want to like make it the simplest um, descriptor possible, he's a national hero because he's the one who's been fighting whatever battles that Saul had fought against the Philistines too. And probably the only real success Saul had in a lot of these areas was when Abner was leading the army. Yeah. I wonder if they'd also be pleased with what was going on because it was further confirmation that David wasn't plotting and scheming to take things in an illegitimate way. Absolutely. I I mean, because this could have been the prime moment for David to rise up and, and strike out. I mean, if, if he was really trying to do a military overthrow of the house of Saul, when better than to go out and strike Ishbosheth now that his Mm -hmm. main military leader is gone, when his, Armies are in disarray. Or when, when better to, to strike than when the general comes to a feast for you yeah. to take him out. And, that's, and it, I, that's probably part of the reason that David was so angry, because he's like, this is not how we're going to do this. And It makes me look bad. Yep. Exactly. And so, yeah, he hadn't struck down Abner at the meal. But then, like I said, the fact that whenever the army, when Ishbosheth's army is without a leader, David doesn't take off and and fight instead he stops to to mourn and doesn't even eat so he's not even preparing himself in any way for a battle Mm -hmm. Uh, you know the people see this and they respect that and you know you have to wonder if there's anybody in today's leadership that would ever act like that i mean i i I don't see many people that i would expect that from and i could be wrong but anyway verse 37 so all the people in all of Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put, the, put to death Abner, the son of Ner. And so what we were saying earlier, but you know, think about the state of the people. Saul was supposed to be the one who saved them from Philistine uh, oppression, but you know, obviously he's failed miserable, miserably, not only in his reign. Ishbosheth is um, ruling over a country full of Philistines. Mm-hmm. He, he, Saul, had been unpredictable he's been self-absorbed and you know there's been momentary flashes of greatness but nothing that the people could really count on right uh, he had done exactly what samuel had promised he would do as a king which was take he'd taken crops he'd taken animals he'd taken sons he'd taken um daughters he killed the priest at nob uh he attempted to kill david he attempted to kill his own son i mean saul's list of Things he messed up on mm-hmm. are really, really big things on a long list. Right. And so then you've got to go back and think about, so Saul's the king they know. Whenever you go back before that, when Israel doesn't have a king, the only other major political leaders on the stage were the oppressing kings and generals from other nations, not from within their own. Go back before that. Now we're talking about Egypt. So every political figure that Israel had ever encountered up until the time of David was potentially lethal. Mm. I mean, they had no reason to trust any kind of political figure. 
at all. And so when David moves this way, where we just kind of read, oh, look, it's David being David, (laughs) this would have been just so shocking to the people as a whole, not just based on personal experience, but what they had been taught through their own history as a people. I can't even imagine what it would have been like for them to try to process how different this was because it, it, it's totally counter to everything they've known. And so David's here blowing their mind because he actually shows some empathy and, and concern over his enemies. And it's not just his enemies, but for Israel and what it means for Israel. And in, for the first time, what, what the entire nation is getting to see is David doesn't exist. So Israel can serve him. Like Saul believed that Israel existed to serve him as a king. David believes he exists to serve the nation. And so again, that complete reversal, Mm -hmm. Saul used Israel as just, you know, this, this picking grounds where he could go out and gather whatever he wanted for his own benefit. And David is not doing that. David is being who he is and people are coming to him. He's not having to take because people are volunteering and that's a huge difference. And so when they see David join with them in their national mourning and not seeing himself above it, now they're seeing a king that has defied every expectation about who he is as a person and who a king can be uh, within that role. Because right. before that, like I said, it just it didn't fit. And so, um, you know, he is showing them not just how to what a king can look like. And I, I think we need to remember this. And I feel like we harp on this all the time within this podcast, but it's it's impossible to get around. The king was the representative of God. Right. Now think of what kind of representation they had of God and Saul versus the kind of representation they're getting from David. Yeah, it it reminds me of the speech from Tyler Durden in Fight Club. (laughs) Our fathers are representations of God. If our fathers abandoned us, what does that say about God? Yeah. And here you have that, yeah, that same kind of image uh, looking here at Saul versus looking at David. So, yeah. I can see that. Well, and we also have this other great contrast because David's in contrast with Joab. Joab is a very effective general. He's very much a product of the culture that that gave birth to him. He's very entrenched in the culture that produced him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's thinking like a good general. And I don't think if we were being honest, if we, we just objectively evaluate what he did on as far as being efficient and getting things done, and doing things that are smart, Joab's doing that. Mm -hmm. And so what David's doing isn't even smart. And yet here's Joab presenting what this smart option would be. And it's really interesting that David wins the people over, not by conquering, not through force, not through bribery, but just by joining with them in mourning. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a huge lesson there because the people didn't follow Joab, unlike Ishbosheth, where people are like, "Well, what's Abner doing? We need to make sure we're doing what he's doing." Mm-hmm. The people are actually looking to the king. So verse thirty-eight, and the king said to his servants, 
do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen th- this day in Israel? So David, he, he acknowledges that Abner was a great man. And, you know, Abner had single-handedly brokered the re- reunification of Israel with David, with Judah. It, it, he had just been killed before it was realized. Mm-hmm. And he set all the pieces in place. And, you know, if David had not taken a decisive lead in this moment, it's very conceivable that the entire fa- entire country could have fallen into chaos. Right. Because they are not with any kind of strong leader. So ver- verse 39, uh, David, he, he pauses to remind them how he was chosen to reign. Uh, chosen to reign. Uh, sorry. Uh, my... Uh, handwriting's losing me again and he says and i was gentle today though anointed king you know basically i could have attacked ishbosheth i could have ordered joab's execution even because he is including this he's including his dealings with joab well in uh, in the jps it says um today i um and today i am weak even though anointed king ah so i think that's kind of interesting when you're talking about how there's saying the king should not even attend funerals as to mm-hmm. not appear distressed. And uh, so I, I think that's kind of an interesting uh, translation. It kind of adds a little more depth, I think, to what David's saying. Yeah, well, and, and uh, I should look that up because I didn't even think to stop and look and, and, and parse what the word for gentle or weak was because the idea that a king could be gentle would have been perceived as weakness. So, or weakness could have been seen as gentle. And you know, Saul was not seen as a weak king. He was just seen as a dangerous king. Uh, and there's a big difference between being weak and being dangerous. And you know, David has every right to attack Ishbosheth, and he has every right to attack, um, to have ordered Abner's execution. The fact that he has chosen not to reveals more about him than anything mm-hmm. he has done. And, and I think it's interesting that. What he chooses not to do reveals more than what he chooses to do. Yep. And so um, then he goes on. He says, these men, these sons of Zariah, they, they are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evil uh, doer according to his wickedness. So you know, David could have Joab executed. Um, now, he couldn't have him executed for murder because he doesn't have enough witnesses. But... Joab had been insubordinate, and for a general to be insubordinate to a king was grounds enough for a king to order an execution. So this is one of the ways that the rabbis see David using a loophole, because David still needs Joab. Mm-hmm. Uh, for him to get rid of his, his general at this point in time, it, it would have put him in a really dicey situation, and, and David's okay with waiting. He can wait for justice because David's not going to let this go completely unanswered. By the time we get over to 2 Kings uh, chapter 2, we're going to find that this is why he can afford to be gentle while, while he waits. He doesn't have to um, make any kind of major move because he knows it's all going to work out. So um, with, with Abner, you know, the true power behind the throne, he's gone. There's this tentative agreement uh, between the tribes, and the only thing that's standing between David and the throne of all of Israel is Ishbosheth. And so, what we're going to have to look at, and what we're going to have to 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 wait to find out, is exactly 
how is David going to, what's his next move? Right. Because up to this point, everything's kind of been happening around him and he's been responding to it, but he's not really made any decisive um, standalone decisions. Well, and I, I think now is the time where, where that's available to him. There's not an anointed king anymore. Right. But how big of a claim does Ishbosheth have? And does he have a right to, to touch the son of the anointed? That, that's going to be the big question. That's the question that the nation is and asking. And does he care? <laughs> well, you know, with David, sometimes that's a very legitimate question. No, I mean, does, jo- does Ishbosheth care whether or not to attack David, whether or not he should touch the king's anointed, the, well, the Lord's anointed? I don't think, you know, and that's the thing. When you look at Ishbosheth, there is never anything noble or royal that comes out of his mouth. Right. I, he comes across, it, it, at least to me, as a very whiny, almost childlike figure. And it's mm-hmm. conveyed in the space of s- very few verses, right? And very few words. And it's it's amazing to me that um, the writer was able to kind of give that picture without adding any more description to it. Yeah. And so uh, we're going to be talking uh, next episode about Ishbosheth's death and how that plays out, what the timeline is. Uh, there's some, some major debate on exactly when it happens uh, and how that impacts the way we read the rest of the story. Because even at Ishbosheth's death, David is still not an active player. And it, what's, what I find to be interesting about the whole first part of the Second Samuel book is David doesn't become an active player until he takes back Jerusalem. And that's whenever he steps into this role and he begins to actually be the, the active participant instead of someone who's just acted upon. Sure. And, you know, over and over again, while I've been going through this, one of the things I keep thinking is, man, we always talk about the patience of Job. Who's talking about the patience of David? Because this just drug on and on and on. I mean, we're talking about at least 15 to 17 years of David not knowing what was going to happen one day to the next. Right. And, you know, Job's story at least seems a little bit more condensed than that. And so yeah, I just, I wonder, you know, mm-hmm. I, I wonder why we never talk about that and yeah. waiting for that fulfillment. So well, because we want to clean David up. We want to make him look prettier. We want, <laughs> it's, it's that whole thing. We want to make these people who are celebrated as heroes of faith squeaky clean. Well, it's and, not always that. I, maybe too, the other thing is, we want to think that God's going to just boom, 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 move, that there's not going to be any lag time. You know, there's no buffering right. between heaven and earth. Um, you know, okay, so maybe bad example. But anyway. That sounds like one. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> but you don't know what I mean, because I've had the conversation several times this week with people in that 11th hour, and I feel like a lot of us feel like we're there in our lives for various reasons, and... It's like we're waiting for God to do something. We're waiting for God to move. And I, I just wonder how many times David went, uh, that Samuel dude, did he really know what he was talking about? <laughs> because, God, I'm waiting for you. So anyway. Yeah, I get that. My speculation. Yeah. Well, we and we can speculate on that more and more. And we've got plenty of time to do it, I, I hope. Anyway, so um, that being said, everyone, uh, thanks for joining us. If you want to be part of the crazy speculation <laughs> conversation, whatever we got going on here. Uh, hit us up, ravencreeksc.com, where you can find us. Also find 
Joe Zaragoza with uh, Commentarians, where he talks about movies and what they mean to him and, and, his, and guest. his guest. Yeah. <laughs> and Emily's there sometimes. I'm there sometimes. We have a good time over there. And also check out Change My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. It's another show that we uh, support and really enjoy. So anyway, that being said, uh, if you don't want to go through all that trouble, hit us up <laughs> on the social media, uh, Raven Creek SC. You can find us there. Send us a message, comment, like, subscribe, all those fun things that help us uh, get the word out more. So anyway, thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.